Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life. That's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Wednesday, September 13th, and we'll be talking about the cost of developing a cancer drug on the show today. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and I'm joined today by Motley Fool healthcare contributor, Todd Campbell. Todd, how's the week treating you? Hi, Christine. Boy, we are going to be talking about some pretty mind-blowing numbers today, aren't we? Yeah, big big numbers that are going to be hard to wrap your brain around, but they'll still be really interesting. Well, Christine, I actually have an idea to kind of help you know, our listeners put, put the numbers in perspective. Okay, let's hear it. All right, so I'm, I'm gonna go out on a limb, Christine, you can agree or disagree with me. I'm gonna go out on a limb and, and say that most of our listeners probably, you know, own a car, and they probably, many of them own a house, right? Okay, sure. You think that's pretty fair to say? Yeah, okay. that, that seems like maybe most of our listeners. Yeah, okay, so I felt like for perspective's sake, it might be helpful to throw two numbers out that our listeners can kind of keep in the back of their mind as we dig into the subject. And the first was the average amount that Americans pay to own a car. What's what's their payment? And that number is $475. Okay. And is the next amount of number monthly? that I want to throw up there. Is that monthly is, payment or? That's, that's the monthly payment. Okay. That's right, Christine. So $475 per month, right? And the next number I wanted to throw out there is the monthly mortgage payment. And that's Fifteen hundred per month, on average. So typically speaking, that's what you know most Americans are paying for their car and for the home. And Christine, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but I feel like those are probably you know generally speaking two of the most expensive line items in in a monthly budget. For sure. And those numbers actually sounded higher than I would have guessed. Yeah, I was a little surprised, uh, but then I'm a little bit more frugal, perhaps, uh, <laughs> you know, especially with my autos. Um, but yeah, so so keep those numbers in mind, listeners, as we go in and talk about some some figures that are are just astronomical. I mean, it's gonna be hard to k- get your arms around them, no question. Yeah, so you're you're contextualizing expenses. We're we're about to talk about how expensive it is to create a drug. So just one more time, so that we have them fresh at the top of our minds. Remind me, what's the car payment and what is the the home payment? All right, so four hundred and seventy five a month for the car. Okay. And fifteen hundred a month for the mortgage. Okay, gotcha. So. There's a reason that we are talking today about how expensive it is to develop a cancer drug, and that reason is that there was a recent study that was published in a very well-known journal that comes from the American Medical Association claiming that they had figured out how much it costs on average to make a cancer drug. Right. Numbers have been floating around for years, the back and the forth of um, how much does it really cost to develop a drug. Uh, and you know we'll get into a little bit more depth later on why those numbers are are important to drug makers. But I mean, I think that you'd have to be living pretty much underneath a rock not to realize that you know drug prices have become a major uh, consideration. And you know not just from an investing standpoint of what it may mean for the drug makers who are developing these drugs, but obviously for consumers who, in the end, either through higher health insurance premiums or directly, are paying. Uh, the brunt of the cost of these these more expensive medicines. So, you know, we have these two researchers who went out 
and said, well, maybe we can actually put a specific figure to the cost or the sky high cost of developing drugs and figure out exactly how high sky high really is. And that's what was published this past week in uh, JAMA Internal Medicine. And I'm sure that if our listeners reach out to us, we can we can get them a copy. But you can also search for that online. Yep, absolutely. And so this was specifically for cancer drugs. And what they did was they looked at 10 cancer drugs from 10 different companies that had never gotten a previous FDA approval and who did have their first drug approved between the years 2006 and 2015. And they looked at the entire research and development expenses all the way up through that approval. So with that, it would also incorporate the cost of failed drugs that didn't actually get approved by the FDA. And they landed on a final number for how much these these companies are spending. Todd, do you want to like do a, the reveal? Did you like a drum roll there, Christine? I, I don't know how it's going to sound on the mic, but <laughs> listeners, do it do it on your steering wheel, wherever you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what's what's that cost, Christine? So they found that it, it costs a median of $757 million to create one of these drugs. It is absolutely amazing. How much money we're talking about? This with nine numbers, 757 million. Now that includes some opportunity costs. You know, uh, so basically, what you could do with the money other than trying to develop new drugs. I mean, if you x out that opportunity cost, uh, you're still talking about 648 million in spending to get these drugs across the finish line. And I know we got listeners out there, statisticians, who are going, wait, 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 wait. What do you mean that they only looked at? Uh, companies that were getting their first drug approved, isn't that going to skew the, the numbers? Well, yes, absolutely. And then they acknowledge that. Yeah. And, and the reason that they did that for a reason. And the reason is that, you know, if you other studies that have been done in the past tend to look at large pharmaceutical companies that have been around a long time and that therefore may be a little bit bloated. So they get a little bit more in the say selling, marketing and you know general expenses that theoretically could skew um, the, the actual research and development costs of individual drugs. So they said let's just take it from scratch from a company that is it's relatively new, it's developing some stuff in the pipeline they spend a bunch of money over a period of time ahead of getting a drug approval. How much did they spend divided by that one drug that was approved? And that's and that's the median number that we came up came up with. There were a lot, though, of interesting points that they raised in in the study. It's a really interesting read. Yeah, one of the ones that stood out to me was how large the ranges of the the, the spending figures were. They ranged from 157 million at the low end to 1.95 billion at the high end to get to that median of 757 million. And right, well, and listeners are probably like, "Wait, Christine, how is that even possible? How can one company be spending 200 million and another one spending a billion?" Do you know the answer? I'm assuming that it has something to do with the indication being studied, whether or not you had to go into phase three, whether or not you had to conduct multiple phase three trials, and how many patients actually had to be studied in each of those. Yeah, I mean, there are going to be so many different factors that go into that. But of course, trial design is everything, really. I mean, and also just how many different drugs you had to try before you hit the jackpot, so to say. I mean, if the first lottery ticket that you buy is the winner, then it's going to be it's going to come at a lower expense. Right, on average, these companies, these new young companies, I think had 4.5, well, let's call it four, four different drugs that were in their pipeline. They were hoping that one of them would end up proving 
uh, proving out, and sure enough, one did end up proving out. The other thing that's really struck me, Christine, was the sheer numbers in revenue that these drugs have uh, have generated. I mean, we're talking about the expense, and wow, wow, we're talking about huge numbers, how much it costs to develop these drugs. But then you find out that, you know, let's not cry too many tears for the drug maker. Yeah, if you, as a uh, reminder on the, the range of spending was $157 million to $195 billion. If you total that up, the 10 drug makers in aggregate spent $7.2 billion. If you look at what they made off of those drugs, they spent $7.2 billion. They made $67 billion in total. The median revenue for one of these drug makers was $1.66 billion, and that was just within a median time frame of four years post-approval. David Gardner would call that a spiffy pop. <laughs> yeah, that's that's an incredible ROI, return on investment. Yeah, you know, and if you if you look at just from a, on a median perspective, you know, those drugs, each of those drugs, the median had been on the market now for four years, and the median number in revenue is 1.6 billion. So even if you look at the median, you know, halfway in the middle, um, you're talking about a very nice return. Now, again, there was a large range in revenue as well. Um, but still, you're talking about, I think, nine of the 10 generating a profit uh, that's greater than what they put, had to put out to be able to bring this, this company, this drug to the market. Just to give a little bit of color on what types of drugs we're talking about here, a lot of them are drugs that are coming from companies that we talk about all the time on the show. Do you want to share with our listeners a couple of the ones that made the list? Well, I think that this is this is actually going to be, you know, keep those numbers we talked about at the top of the show in mind here, right? Uh, and I'm going to throw out some monthly costs so you can put that in perspective. So again, we were talking about 475 for the car, 1500 for the mortgage. But if you want to go out and you want to buy Pfizer and Estelle's Extandy, it's going to cost you over $5,000 per month. Yeah. And that's a prostate cancer drug. This is a drug if that you, gets around $2 billion in annual sales. Right. If you want to go out and you need to get prescribed Exilix's uh, Cabomedics, it's going to cost you a whopping $13,600 per month, you know, depending on the dose. Right. And of course, these are list prices that you're using, I'm assuming? Actually, no. I gave them the benefit of the doubt, and I'm actually going with the federal supply price. So this is the price that the government pays, which is going to be a factor based upon the negotiated prices that they actually charge to different commercial insurers. Okay, interesting. So, but I mean, in any case, most patients that are on these drugs are insured, and so they're not paying that entire sum out of pocket. Right. Unless uh, maybe you're falling into the donut hole. Uh, if you're on Medicare, there could be some some patients that, that get whacked with a, with a big bill. But yes, as long as you have insurance, the insurance is picking up that tab. But as we all know, Christine, we've talked about this before in the past, right? The insurers don't make a lot of money on each individual person. So one way or another, those costs are flowing through to us as consumers. Yep. Yeah, we, we do pay in the end. But because of the insurance industry, we end up paying more of a, an even split among the whole population. Right. And Christine, let me give you a few more of these. Right? Okay, Just let's to hear really it. hammer home the point. So if you're going to get prescribed Johnson Johnson or Abby's Imbravica, the government would be paying six point eight dollars to $8,300 per month. If you were going to get Seattle Genex, et cetera, they'd be paying about $5,000 per month. Insights Jack Fee would set them back about $8,000 per month, on and on and on. And I think it's important for, for listeners, and both from an investing standpoint, but also from, 
from as as patients as people right to recognize that uh, there's really no end in sight to the sales that, that are being generated by these companies. I mean, the, the growth for each one of these drugs, uh, all but one that I just listed, is double digits year over year. Yeah, they are relatively recently approved drugs, and so they're still under patent protection. So there's there's really no end in sight for being able to command such high prices. And we want to dig in a little bit to what the justification is for those prices and some of the arguments around what uh, different types of treatments might be priced at going forwards. And we'll do that right after we come back. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. All right, so we are back to the meat of the show, talking about drug prices. In 2014, I saw a statistic that the direct medical cost of cancer care topped $87 billion in the U.S. alone. And to me, that just begs the question, where do we go from here? Is, is specifically cancer treatment going to continue to be so expensive? It, it, it is an eye-popping eye amount of money that we're spending on cancer drugs now. Where we've uh, eclipsed, I think, a hundred billion in spending on oncology medicine. Uh, it's a major issue, and in, I think it's no real surprise that one of the authors of the study that we just referenced uh, early in the show um, actually came from Memorial Sloan Kettering, which is a very highly regarded cancer center. And in the past, they've been, you know, I, I'd say very vocal about the concern of of high-priced drugs right, making it to market that haven't been proven um, to boost overall survival. Instead, most approvals for cancer drugs, because cancer is so hard to treat, are based on things, surrogate endpoints. So things like progression-free survival and overall response rate. It's a, um, it's a, it's a very big, big problem to investors and to patients because the costs that are associated with these drugs, so the reason we're spending so much on the cost, is climbing incredibly fast. You know, the inflation rate for drug development, especially in the preclinical stage drugs, is growing much more rapidly than other parts uh, of the economy. And those costs have to be borne by somebody. And you can't just go out and say, we're going to cut prices across the board and mandate it, because what happens then to innovation? Because if you don't generate out a tremendous reward, then that capital, that investment, will head somewhere else, either towards building the next Amazon or whatever. Right. So as a drug maker, when you're looking at your opportunity costs, where should you deploy your capital, you're going to figure out where do I have the best risk versus reward. And one of the reasons why these cancer drugs are getting more and more expensive, and across the board, not just even in oncology, why drugs are getting more expensive, is because they're going towards more narrowly defined targeted patient populations. And so just by the rules of economics, if you're trying to make a bunch of money, but you have a very small pool of people that you're selling your product to, it has to be a pretty expensive product in order for you to even recoup your investment that you put into it. 
And so if you're looking at a drug, like say the, the gene therapy that was approved on was August 30th, that we've talked about a couple times on the show now, Kimraya from Novartis, this is a drug that potentially only has a couple hundred patients that it could actually help. And so the price is absolutely astronomical. This is a drug that's going to cost $475,000 for a treatment. $475,000. And really what we're talking about there is a 20-day vein-to-vein treatment. So 20 days, it's going to cost $475,000. It, it's, it's pretty jaw-dropping. But I think you really alluded to something, and that's that you know, from, from a drug maker's perspective, they're looking at it, they're saying, okay, yeah, precision medicine is wonderful, but it's incredibly complex. And with that complexity comes costs. And, you know, the higher these costs are earlier in drug development, the more selective we have to be in choosing which drugs we're going to pursue. And that's kind of scary from a patient perspective because it means that only the drugs, the only drugs that are actually going to end, end up moving further and further deeper and deeper into the clinic towards market are going to be those drugs that are the most commercially relevant. <laughs> Yep. Uh, we had a listener email that I want to highlight. This one comes from someone named Jean from San Diego, uh, who worked in the pharmaceutical development industry for 15 years. He used to work for Pfizer, now works for Takeda, which is pretty cool. He sent us an email and asked about the price tag for Kimraya. And he also brings up a point about is this a red flag that a huge price tag is needed to make the economics of some of these new forms of therapy like CAR-T treatment work? And should we be nervous as investors about the potential for a price reform across the board? I think it's something that we have to bear in mind. I mean, obviously, anyone who's been paying attention the last couple of years knows that price uh, played a very major role in in the debates for the last presidential election, um, I think that a lot of the kind of the, the the rhetoric has died down a little bit on the pricing issue as as people realize just how complex this whole system and reforming this whole system would be, and the unintended consequences obviously are are you know shouldn't be dismissed, right? I mean, if if you make changes to the system as it is today and it results in no longer pursuing the development of a drug that saves lives. Well, you're talking about real people on the line here. So, you know, you have to be very careful in the way that you approach these things. And you have to make sure that all of the participants are being um, treated fairly. And that includes, you know, the drug makers who are, of course, are, are absorbing a lot of the risk, all of the risk up front to develop these medicines. And I think that that's something that's that's been recognized by the current administration and uh, the new FDA head, Scott Gottlieb, who actually just had a very uh, important, I think, and useful, recommended reading folks, um, speech this past week, uh, where he talked about, you know, where do we go from now? How do we go about reforming from the FDA's perspective, drug development so that drugs can get, more drugs can reach the market more quickly and perhaps help rein in spending that way. Um, I think it's also important or interesting, Christine, because you brought up Kimraya to look at it and say, okay, well, you know, 475,000, that's an incredibly high price tag for a relatively small population on, on, in the aggregate. It's not going to move the needle much one way or the other. But what happens as, you know, say, Kite Pharma's AxiCell gets approved and now you can treat thousands of patients and then these, drug, these drugs get expanded into other indications. Now they're treating tens of thousands of patients. Well, obviously, $475,000 is unsustainable. 
So one of the models that they're looking at for these drugs is to say, okay, well, maybe we'll do indication-based pricing. So, you know, maybe we charge 475 in acute lymphoblastic leukemia, but maybe the price in a larger indication like um, non-Hodgkin lymphoma is going to be uh, 350 I don't know. I'm throwing numbers out there, but you get the idea. Right. Yeah. It's really interesting when you consider these different types of pricing models that are being thrown out there. Novartis says that if a patient doesn't respond to their new drug, Kimraya, they won't charge you. So we, there, there are so many different ways that you could tackle the pricing issue. And it does seem like the FDA is considering a whole range of different uh, solutions to this. I, I would agree that the, the speech that he gave, I think this was on Monday, it was to the Regulatory Affairs Professionals Society at their annual conference. It was it was a really great speech. I mean, he really he, he starts off going through the history of how long it used to take before science could actually be applied in a, a clinical setting and in, in humans and actually be delivered to people uh, in the form of new and better medicine. And he talks about how, how fast that that cycle has evolved and become, but that there are still so many regulatory challenges. And so he, he touches a lot on different potential solutions that the FDA is considering and where they might go from here. Yeah, to hammer home that point too, because it's a, it's an important one. Christine is that you know he talked about um, you know discovering or or kind of postulating that ger- germs existed and were the cause of disease, and it took hundreds of years for us to get to the point where we're actually developing treatments that addressed the fact that we can spread germs. Right? Then you look at Kimraya. Kimraya made it from I think it was the University of Pennsylvania's research department to now commercialization in about five years. So hundreds of years versus five years and obviously far more complex um, to create something like a CAR-T. Yep, absolutely. One last note that I want to touch on before we sign off for the day. I So, research and development is not the only expense that these big pharma companies or the little biotechs have. There's also, as you alluded to earlier, pretty high SG&A, your, your general administrative costs. And so the percentage of SGNA to sales is a pretty good way of looking at whether or not these companies are efficient and, and effective. Well, you know, I'm really glad you brought this up, Christine, because this is another area that, well, I know for the insurance industry, for one, has been banging the drum and saying, come on, people, it's not the research and development costs that are increasing the cost of drugs. It's the spending of these companies on selling general administration which can range from 20 to 30 to 40% depending on the company. And you know, if you're spending that much of your revenue on sales and marketing, you know, maybe there's a problem because those costs are showing up somewhere in the price, right? Yep, absolutely. And and we've talked about this before on the program, but having direct to consumer ads is something that's completely unique to the United States. And it has its benefits, but it also has its drawbacks. And in any case, it definitely is a line item and a huge one. Yeah, and that doesn't even include all the money that's spent by the um, by the, the the feet on the street. You know, the the sales team that's out actually pounding the pavement, knocking on doctors' doors, uh, educating educating them up on the drug, and trying to convince them to prescribe their medicine over someone else's medicine. I think that from an investing standpoint, because we are an investing show, and I think it's important to have a takeaway in talking about these these huge numbers and what this may mean. Obviously, uh, we have to be aware that there could be some changes uh, in the future, and we don't know how those changes will will end up playing out in terms of profit, right? I mean, these these pricing by indication schemes, for example, we don't know exactly what that will do to profit yet. 
I think that from an investing standpoint, it's a, a, you, there's two different things that you can do to try and make sure that you're you're investing in companies that are operationally very strong companies that can withstand hiccups as we go through this period of change. And there are two the two metrics that I think that people should focus on are high operating margin companies and companies that spend very little on SG&A. Okay, so when you look at those two together, what companies stand out to you? Well, there were five companies, and I looked at larger companies. I didn't look at development stage companies. I wanted to look at mid and large cap companies. And there were five companies that I thought had very high operating margins, the highest operating margins across the industry. There were United Therapeutics, there was Gilead, Amgen, and Celgene was among them as well. But then if you look at you know who who spends the least on SGNA, of those five, only Gilead and Biogen make that list too. So perhaps those are two of the, the operationally best investments out there in biotech to withstand change. Okay, those are some good takeaways. Thanks so much, Todd. We've reached the end of another healthcare episode, and this one will be my last one for nearly a month as I'm off to Greece for vacation. Listeners who are familiar with Greece, please send me some recommendations. Our email is industryfocus@fool.com. I'll be flying in and out of Athens, and I'll spend half the trip traveling with a friend and half solo, plan on hitting a bunch of islands, but really have no concrete plans. While I'm gone, you'll still hear from Todd each week. A couple of episodes were pre-recorded, and my colleague Michael Douglas will be stepping in for another show. In the meantime, hope you all have a wonderful few weeks. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. The show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!